0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight we're going, to go pick, we're going to pick up close to where we left off last week, though I think just a little bit of review will be beneficial to you as we look at things. Last week I introduced the theological issue of sexuality, marriage, and gender. And we began We began with sexuality, and I mentioned that first, we must recognize the reality that fallen people have fallen desires. And then I said that when it comes to sexuality, we must understand, secondly, that Scripture equips us to offer an answer to all the questions. And, and even that question that we talked about last week, what if someone claims that they were born that way. Now, I want to interject something here that I did not mention last week, and that is why I labeled this whole first section sexuality as opposed to something like homosexuality or same-sex marriage. After all, I think you could read between the lines, isn't that the main issue that we're talking about? Homosexuality. So why call it just sexuality? After all... There's bigger issues, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, it's a real issue, and it is a major issue before the church today, this, the sin of homosexuality. In 2014, what kind of issue is it? In 2014, Pew Research conducted a poll, and just consider what they discovered. You won't be able to read that. I can't hardly read it but i put it up there so you know i actually have a graph <laughs> not just making this up i hope of americans who identify as christian that's a very broad category but as a, of americans who identify as christian 54% now say that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged by society We're at a point where Christians who believe homosexuality should be accepted are now in the majority. Now, admittedly, this number is lower than non-Christian faiths, and in non-Christian faiths, 76% of non-Christian faiths say that homosexuality should be accepted. But we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves because of the trend. Pew Research conducted the same survey in 2007. At that time, 44% of Christians, less than half, said homosexuality should be accepted. So in seven years, that's what that red arrow is pointing to, Christians, in seven years, the number grew by 10 percentage points. Do you remember what happened between 2007 and 2014? The Supreme Court ruled on Obergefell. There's a lot going on in our court. We had a president who had an agenda. He pushed a very social, liberally, a liberally social agenda. The Obergefell, if you, remember, if you recall, that was the Supreme Court decision that repealed the Defense of Marriage Act. That This statistic is skewed. Remember, I said 54%. Unless we think that this statistic is skewed by mainline mainline Protestant denominations, what I mean by that, the Lutheran, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopals, what we would call theologically liberal. Consider how homosexuality is viewed among those we might consider to be of like faith and practice, namely Baptists in America. In 2007, 23% of Baptists believed homosexuality was wrong. But by 2014, that number had grown to 30%. So the trend is going up. That was among theologically conservative Baptists, namely the Southern Baptist Convention would be the only one that we would find closest to us here in this poll. It was higher, and with an even greater increase in the more theologically liberal American Baptist churches. They grew by almost 14%. Compare these Baptist statistics to a denomination like the Assemblies of God. While we certainly have major doctrinal disagreements with the Assemblies of God, we actually do find agreement on social issues with them, such as abortion, marriage, and family issues. The Assemblies of God had the lowest acceptance of homosexuality in 2007, at 16%. And they grew an entire 10 percentage points to 26% by 2014. My point is, no denomination is really immune from this growth. Now, as what we would call independent Baptists or fundamental Baptists, however you want, we're so small... We're not included in these polls. And I don't know how much we would really change it. I don't. It is a major issue facing not just our culture, but it's facing our churches today. And I don't think we are immune from its effects. Because, and this is why, our children are being inundated with the agenda. It's all over TV shows. It's in family movies. I say family movies. I forgot I had that in quotations. I need to tell you. You you can't read my notes. Family movies. You'll be watching something, it'll come up, and it'll go away. And it is just, they see it. It's on billboards as you drive. It's in commercials you watch Walmart commercials you see it it just comes and it goes it's in everyday life and our children are seeing this and just being inundated it becomes to them it's just what is so yes it is an issue but this is where I say it's not our only issue That is why I don't just call it the issue of homosexuality. It's the issue of sexuality as a whole that we must confront. Homosexuality is just a symptom of the overall cultural chaos we have created by abusing human sexuality. And while culture has been celebrating so-called sexual freedom, the church has folded within itself and refuse to establish God-honoring biblical standards of sexuality even in our churches. From how we have allowed the unrepentant to retain positions in our churches, to ignoring the repentance of those who have fallen in immorality, to refusing to restore those who have repented with many tears, to shaming victims, while we protect the perpetrator to relegating human sexuality to just a taboo topic that receives little to no biblical instruction for our children. And instead of teaching our children what the Bible says, parents choose rather to ignore this fundamental responsibility of raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And to this last point, the world has eagerly filled the void for us training our children in the way the world wants them to go. And now we see that our children don't depart from it when they're older, but rather they embrace the world's standards of morality. So, let me go back here. This is because the third point I made last week, thirdly, we must affirm that all sins make us deserving of condemnation. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. Immorality and infidelity and adultery are not the unpardonable sins. Sin is sin. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yet we seem to think that homosexuality is that one egregious affront to a holy God. But there are many believers Who are battling with sexual addiction, addiction, pornography, even in our churches with same sex attraction. And these are all sins in the eyes of God. Sin is what separates us, not specific sins. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners simply because we commit a sin. And so, brothers and sisters who struggle with sexual sins are not in a different class of people. They're not a different class of Christian. They are not dirtier than the rest of us. All of us have perverted, wicked, ungodly desires of which we must all repent and seek forgiveness. Christ died and rose to save all kinds of sinners, whoever repents of sin and trusts in Him. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, Though on the one hand, all sin makes us worthy of condemnation. On the other hand, we can't forget that unholy sexual activity, regardless of its type, is consequential. Because it rebels against and denies God's design for humanity. It rebels against the way we were created. So we are not necessarily wrong for being repulsed by sins that blatantly deny God's holiness, or worse, as we see in our culture, celebrate rebellion against the created order. And then the fourth, I think I mentioned, deals with how we respond to issues of sexuality, or more specifically, that the people who are entangled in those sins. See, our posture should be towards those who experience same-sex attraction, or those who allow the passions of the flesh to control their actions, it must be one of compassion, kindness, gentleness, and speaking the truth in love. This is especially true for the believer who is engulfed in sin, but it also should be how we represent our Heavenly Father to those who are not believers. Screaming from a picket line, calling names, taking to social media to declare all the vitriol we can muster, it may seem like we are hating the sin, but certainly it doesn't appear to the world that way. Instead of focusing on how much we hate the sin, and we should hate what God hates, sometimes I wonder if we do better to demonstrate how much we love the sinner and are willing to speak the truth to them in love. So, after we, looked, after we looked at the issue of sexuality last week, we then moved to the institution of marriage. You might recall that I did make a connection between how we view human sexuality with how we view marriage. Our culture has played this out for us. Once our culture attacked the sanctity of our created purpose, we then attacked the institution for which that purpose was designed. And to see this divine purpose and institution, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where we needed to see three truths that we needed to consider prior to looking at marriage. And the first we looked at, the first preliminary truth, was that man was created in the image of God. And we call this the Imago Dei. That's the Latin. To be an image bearer means that we are reflecting the image or likeness of another. In this case, man and woman were created to reflect the character of God. Note this, that both man and woman are made in God's image. And the important implication of both man and woman being image bearers is the fact that they are both equal in dignity and value in the eyes of God. So right here, in the first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, it is important to understand that there is equal dignity and value of both man and woman. And we have to understand that, the truth before, that truth before we can even consider the different roles in marriage. Secondly, we had to look at the preliminary truth of dominion. Now, as an image bearer, Adam and Eve served as God's representatives in the Garden of Eden. And the principle here is one of stewardship. God is the owner and creator of creation. And man and woman were appointed together as a unit to be his divine caretakers. And then finally we saw last week the preliminary truth of procreation. One way in which man and woman can rule and subdue the earth is to have children. Be fruitful and multiply, it said in verse 28. We rule the earth by filling the entire planet with other image bearers who will also reflect back to God his own glory. So then we moved to four implications in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 25. And I was about to introduce these four implications of marriage when we ran out of time. Actually, I think I did get through the first one. But we're going to start with implication number one this evening. And we're going to introduce those again, and I I think it would help us if we read again Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is what the Bible says. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. So the first implication we see in this passage is that God has given the authority to the man or to the husband to lead in marriage. When God gave Adam the task in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 to dress and keep the garden, he immediately followed with instructions on how to do it. He actually gives him some prohibitions and explains the prohibition to Adam in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. The woman, we have talked about this last week, was not even on the scene. Besides the command to dress and keep the garden, Adam is also given the opportunity to name the animals. Now, when you have the authority, or when you have the ability, the opportunity to name something, it is a sign of authority. I've had five children, and as my sons were born. I held them up, and I said, he shall be called, and I, there was only really one good name, so I decided let's do it again, Tavis. We will have Tavis, the heir to my throne, you know, <laughs> the firstborn. But I got to name him. Now, Kendall got to make the approving. Of those names that I picked right and so and then when Tanner was born we have a man child he shall be called Tanner and then Titus oh, it was a little bit of a shock Titus was uh, but we got Titus and we named him Titus and then I I had girls too you know I don't want to demean the girls I had girls too and we had Carolyn but we named them as parents we named them naming is a sign of authority so when the animals come to Adam, guess what he gets to do? He's, he's going to name them. And it was the man who was given the responsibility of naming the animals, but he also named who? The woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, he said, she is woman. Now, I've kind of Talked about, you know, I named my boys, I must be in charge. Just because Adam had the role of naming the animals and even naming the woman, we should not think this implies an implication of authority that also implies ownership or domination. Why? Because I think this is answered in Genesis chapter 2, verse 28, where both man and woman together are given the command to replenish the earth and what? Now God says to them, have dominion. He he never said to Adam, hey, you name your wife and you dominate her. That's not what he said. There wasn't dominion there. Together they are given the command to replenish the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the face of the earth. Dominion was granted later, and it was granted to them as a couple, not to one of them individually. He was never told to have dominion over Eve. And 1 Peter puts some meat on this for us when he says that the husband and wife are, as the, Peter says, heirs together of the grace of life. Together heirs. Genesis 2 does not imply the authority of the man does imply the authority of the man, but not dominance of the man over the woman. To think that is to read into the text. The second implication, though, that we see in Genesis 2 is that the wife serves in the role as a help suitable for the man. Even Eve placed herself under the leadership of a fallen man with all of his strengths, and all of his weaknesses. And because she is a helper, it does not give, ever give the husband an excuse to oppress his wife or do any type of evil against her. She is a helper, not the help. Verbal or physical abuse or physical intimidation or anything like that is wrong. The wife is to help the husband. The third implication is that the marital relationship has a structure to it. Now, so far, there might not be much of an argument with the first two implications. I hope I've explained them adequately. By that, I mean one could make an argument that even in a same-sex marriage, there's one who takes a leadership role, and then there's one who supports that other person. You could find that it just in our anthropological look at humanity. There, is, there are leaders, and then there are people who help. So far, nothing I've said can really be used to defend heterosexual marriage over and against homosexual marriage, or even against polygamy or bigamy. But this third implication that I'm about to tell you is, in my opinion, the fundamental truth that I would like for you to really grasp this evening. Marriage has structure. Now, there are a couple things that this does not mean. First, it does not mean that there is a hierarchy. This structure is not a vertical structure. There are so many in our fundamental circles that think that the husband is the mediator between the wife or the family and God. The father is not a high priest in the home. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. My wife has as much access to the throne as a believer as I do. In fact, we are joint heirs together of the grace of life, again from First Peter. But not only is it not a hierarchy, we don't want to go to the other extreme. The roles are not equal either. Marriage is not an egalitarian relationship. Now, while it is true that men and women are equal in worth, an egalitarian view of marriage goes further by stating men and women are considered equal in capability as well. We're not. There are, egalitarians would say there are no gender restrictions on what roles men and women can fulfill in the church, home, and society. But there are. We do have restrictions a woman cannot do everything a man does. And guys, we certainly know we cannot do everything a woman could do. We're not just interchangeable. It's not this idea of egalitarian. But what the marriage does have is what we talked about. I mentioned it last week. is a complementary role in which authority is exercised and help is both needed and freely given. The man has authority and the woman helps him. The husband is not like some five-star general standing on one level higher than that four-star general next to him. It's not a hierarchy, but rather the husband holds the wife's hand and leads her forward together. Maybe you think the label helper is demeaning, It's maybe a demeaning statement to the wife, but I think it says more about the husband's need to be helped than it says about the wife's inabilities or or second role. It, It talks about the husband's need to be helped and the wife's extraordinary giftedness to provide that help. Now, consider again what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Remember what he said? He said, Likewise, you husbands... Dwell with them according to knowledge. And listen to this. He says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the what? Weaker vessel. A grammar lesson here in English. In English grammar, you have degrees of comparison, and then you also have antonyms. Now, what is an antonym? Opposites. What is an antonym? Thank you. Opposites. Opposites. You have one word. So, of course, an antonym is the opposition. So hot is the antonym of cold. Good. Good. Good is the antonym of bad and so on. Often we tend to look at Peter, first Peter, and see not necessarily uh, that there are these... Uh, we take a look up here and see not degrees of comparison, but we, we look at it and we say, well, there's an answer in there. We say, well, if the woman is the weaker vessel, then the man must be the stronger. But weaker is not written in what is called the positive degree. The positive degree offers no comparison. It just tells us about the existence of a quality that something has. Weaker here in the Bible is not in the positive degree. If it was in the positive degree, it would just say unto the weak vessel. But it doesn't. It says weaker. Not weak. It says weaker. If it was the positive degree, it would just say weak. Peter should have said the wife is the weak vessel and the husband is the strong vessel. But he didn't. That's not what he said. He used the comparative degree. He said she was weaker. Of note, he does not use the superlative degree. He does not say she's the weakest, though I think you can imply that. He says she is weaker. Because weaker is the comparative degree, we have to look at the positive degree of weaker, which is weak, and the positive degree, which, which is weak. So if the wife is weaker, she has to be weaker than a weak vessel. Because why? You've heard it. You have weak, weaker, and weakest. Right? So what is weaker than Something that's already weak. So what does all this teach us? Guys, you're weak. And you need help. And so this isn't a matter of, hey, well, I'm going to just look down at the weaker vessel. I'm going I'm to be the hero here. You need help. That's why, the way it was designed. And so I'll introduce to you the word again. We mentioned it last week. I said it a few minutes ago. But tonight we'll dive a little deeper into it. And it's the word complimentary. Complimentary with an E. C O M P L E M E N T A R Y. Not complimentary with an I, which means, wow, you guys all look bright eyed this evening. That's a, a lie. But it's a compliment, all right? Though the concept of male-female complementarity can be seen from Genesis through Revelation, this idea, this word complementarian, has only been in use for about 25 years in theology. And it was coined by a group of scholars who got together to try and come up with a word to describe someone who ascribes to the historic biblical idea that male and female are equal, but they are different. And so... There were some scholars who came up they, they tossed around different ideas. One was the idea that, they say, well, let's say traditional. Well, if you look at history, traditional marriage has not always been great. I mean, you can look at the Old Testament. I would not follow the marriage of, say, David or even Abraham or Jacob. we got a lot of problems in the Bible with marriage. we got fallen man. And so these, these theologians came and said, well, what's this idea? And so they thought about egalitarian, and they thought about traditional, and they said, well, why are they even thinking about this? Now, you might protest by saying, well, wait, I don't, I, I've read my Bible. I've never seen Paul talk about marriage and use that word complimentary. It's not in there. And you're right, it's not. But did you know that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible? Neither is the word rapture. See, we have come to use words to describe biblical theology that is taught in the Bible. And you know how these terms are most often developed? When those doctrines are attacked. For example, the word Trinity. That was not used until the second century. The first recording of the word was by a man named Theophilus of Antioch. And in the fourth century, Arianism taught that the father existed prior to the son, who was not by nature God, but rather a changeable creature who was granted the dignity of becoming the son of God. And it was looked at as heresy, because it was. And so Arianism, they said, well, this isn't right. So a bunch of bishops get together in 325 at the first council of Nicaea. And they met and they said, how are we going to tackle this? And they developed this idea of, not, uh, that's not the right way to say it, they, the word, Trinity, to describe it. They did not develop the doctrine. It had been in the Bible all along. But the result came out of that was the Nicene Creed, which affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. It, they didn't invent the doctrine. They simply gave a name to something because now that doctrine was under attack. And it was when that doctrine came under attack, the church developed a name for the doctrine that they had all along been scripturally defending. And the same is true for this word, complementary. For so long, marriage was not under attack. We have considered marriage, we have, traditionally we've always considered marriage between two people, male and female, who complete each other. Isn't that what Genesis 2 teaches? Eve was a help suitable or meat for Adam. She was bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. So when Adam said that, in the first truly sappy romantic voice, he was saying, Eve, you complete me. That's what Adam was saying. He said, you're bone of my bones, you are flesh of my flesh. It was doctrinally and theologically true before there was ever a name assigned to it. This becomes incredibly beautiful when we consider that because man and woman, women, woman reflect the image of God on their own, together though, I want to, careful, I don't want to get too mystic with it, but when a man and wife come together, they almost do create a third mentality that's different, a personality that's different from them separate. They become together, and they are one person that didn't exist when they were separate. A husband and wife fully reflect the image of God separately, but they also demonstrate the beauty of His divine plan for humanity when they join together. Together they are able to fulfill the mandate of God to fulfill the earth and subdue it. Together they demonstrate obedience to this mandate. If marriage represents the relationship of an eternal Christ in the church, Then what did marriage mean under the old covenant and what will it mean in the kingdom? There there is a universal view of marriage that is applicable to all times and all places. And yet we have the marriage to remind us of that relationship between Christ and his church. And it's a beautiful picture. So this brings us to the fourth implication we see in Genesis chapter 2. This passage implies that God has a design for marriage. Now, this is not some sort of relationship man created. It's not an institution created by man. Or as Jean-Jacques Rousseau described it, he said in this famous quote, Man was born free, and he is everywhere in chains. Rousseau was not speaking of political chains like we as Americans have viewed oppressive governments This was not a statement about freedom and independence. Rousseau was actually speaking of institutions, government, churches, and yes, even family and marriage. He viewed it as an institution that kept people in chains. Marriage is not a man-made institution. It's not a restrictive institution that we created, nor is it a restriction that some pastor or even this bald white guy up here decided, hey, this is what I think marriage should be. Marriage is what God created when he said i will make a help meet for adam in genesis 2:18 it was god proclaiming how he wanted things ordered so we have established the implications of marriage That authority was given to the husband to lead, that the role of the wife is to help the husband, that the marriage relationship has structure to it, and it has a divine design. But now we move into our progression. We first saw that man and woman are sexual beings, and that misunderstanding or abusing that purpose leads to rejection of the divine plan for marriage. But when the the instruction of marriage is destroyed, it logically progresses to insinuating that any person can fulfill the roles in marriage. With no objective institution to present itself, everything becomes subjective. Everything becomes confused. The genders within the institution become confused and confusing. And so this brings us to gender. So how might we summarize the Christian worldview of gender? Well, it's not politically correct to say so. And speaking of politically correctness, I don't think... Anything I've said so far is really earth-shattering. But I do know it's very much against our culture right now. Even what I've said, and I hope I've been kind about it, will be considered hateful. But I hope I've been loving in the way I've presented it. But let's return to the idea of gender. Gender isn't just psychological. But instead of just saying what it isn't, let's see what the Bible says it is. So first, and probably most obvious, gender does pertain to the physical body. It certainly involves our body, our physical sex. That is partly how I'm going to use the term gender tonight, to refer to the fact that each one of us were, as the Bible says, created male and female. This is demonstrated in the makeup of our physical bodies. As a man or woman who have hormones, sex chromosomes, flesh and bones, you embody the image of God on earth in your physical body. But secondly, though, I said that gender is not just psychological, but there is a psychological element to it. We have God-given dispositions and inclinations. Our gender was given to us by God. In addition to our fundamental physical differences, God has also given men and women distinct dispositions. There is a such thing as masculinity and femininity. These are tremendously beautiful roles. The Bible builds on Genesis 2 ther- chapters two and three these proclivities become more formalized through roles in the home as outlined in ephesians chapter five and in the church like we see in first timothy chapter two and ch- chapters two and three gender is not only physical our psychological makeup also af- are affected by gender but third there's also cultural expressions now this may make you uncomfortable You say, what? The culture determines my gender? No, that's not what I'm saying. To think that gender identity can actually shift with culture might make you a little nervous. And I know we like to talk about, well, that's a man's man a hundred years ago. uh, That was a rough, tough guy. He was a gunslinger. That was a man's man. (laughs) We like those romantic views of the woman who maintained her femininity even while crossing the Great Plains in a covered wagon. And we hold our children accountable when we don't like the generational standards where we can't stand men in skinny jeans or women in pants or man buns or even short hair on women. How can we have this? And we think we are preaching biblical standards, but really we're just preaching cultural standards. Because really, a lot of how we view gender is cultural. Let me give you an example. The biblical view recognizes that there are cultural expressions of gender that are actually value-neutral and can change from error to error. So, men in the Enlightenment in France wore tights, makeup. The father of your country wore a powdered wig. That sissy. <laughs> in fact, you ever heard the term, I'm going to put my best foot forward? They would take and they would actually put padding to have their calf look more muscular. And if you see the photos, I'm sorry, I told you I wouldn't move. I'm moving back. They would actually they would put their in their pictures they would put their foot forward to put your best foot forward to show your muscular calf. That was covered in tights. <laughs> If you look at some of the paintings of George Washington, he had a a nice little heel on. The pilgrims wore buckles. Are you going to come to church with buckles on your shoe? (laughs) But today we don't wear wigs and powdered wigs and makeup and tights. In the 1980s, we insisted our women wear culottes. I hope we still don't do that. Clothes, hairstyle, colors, the Bible doesn't spell out what women or men should wear, though it is significant to know that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does expect men and women to present themselves as such through their appearance in ways that make, made sense in their culture and to show their gender, that to, to look like the gender they are. Men are to look like men and women are to look like women. So yes, there are some cultural expressions of gender that vary across time and aren't core to being a man or a woman, but that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. The Bible says gender, fundamentally, is something you are, not just the way you dress or behave. Now let's take a moment and contrast this with the secular view that's become prominent. Today, many some say, would say that your sex is only biological. You either have male or female chromosomes, anatomy, and hormones. Gender, on the other hand, they would say, is psychological. It pertains to your inner sense of identity. Gender, socially defined, includes things like behavior, appearance, clothing, roles. Many theorists argue that there is no necessary correlation between your physical sex and your gender. In this, they diverge from a biblical worldview. A recent article in Slate put it this way. Gender is a kind of performance, something we actively create from the limited cultural materials we encounter. And the writer asserted that babies and toddlers are genderless. This view makes gender radically subjective, known only to that person. And this view opens up the possibility of having the wrong body for one's true gender. Others report a gender identity that doesn't correspond to masculine or feminine at all, but somewhere in between the two. In fact, when I was at George Mason, I I was taking this class, and it, it was explained that it's just a spectrum. And somewhere you are on this spectrum of gender. It makes no sense. It's actually logically impossible. You can't be... As, we, as this popular now say, well, I'm transitioning. You are still either one or the other. Now, you may think you can change that gender, but there is no in-between. So, even though it might seem scandalous to say this within our, within our culture, we must be clear, the Bible rejects this understanding. And the Bible must be the arbiter of truth. It is, as we have said throughout this whole course, the divine revelation that is the source of what we know to be true. Our gender being created, either male or female, and being a man or woman is a gift from God. And it's a holistic gift. It includes our body, the physical makeup, our sense of identity, our psychology, and the dispositions and roles, the culture into which God has placed us. So how do we as Christians show the love of Christ in this world? That celebrates gender nonconformity how do we even as how do we even as we talk about some of these things that may very well go out into the metaverse even as I'm here talking and I know I'm being live streamed how do we potentially talk about these things that could potentially come back to be used against us how do we remain firmly planted in the Word of God well here are five suggestions you won't see them in the notes I encourage you to write them down first seek wisdom brothers and sisters we're not called to walk the world alone. Your job may be asking you to carry out policies that you disagree with. Should you protest? Should you implement the policy but with some sort of dissent? Should you quit your job? I don't know. Ask for wisdom. Much will depend on your job, your situation, and the way the policy might be worded. Seek counsel, seek wisdom. I am in a job that I have seen the social upheaval just wreak havoc on our military. And I pray that I will not compromise, but we have to be wise as serpents, harmless as a dove. Secondly, adopt a posture of compassion. When we think of someone we know who identifies as Homosexual or transgender or a whole host of factors needs to be taken into consideration. A person's sins, their family dynamics, and pain or abuse inflicted by others are just a few of them. That's not to say that they are right to embrace an alternate gender identity. No one gets a free pass on sin because they feel their sinful proclivities are natural to them. But no matter what, we must have compassion on those who are going through what must be very confusing. Remember, too, that many people who embrace an alternate gender identity have been sinned against in terrible ways. They may, memory, they may have endured memories of verbal abuse or worse for what they were or how they behaved growing up, and we must share God's disapproval of any bullying and vitriol that has been hurled at human beings created in His image. They still deserve dignity in the image of God. Particularly if a family member announces to you that he or she is transgender or homosexual, let me encourage you to make your first response an attitude of love. Tell them that you value and care for them as a person. Beginning with a response like this does not endorse their decision. It conveys our commitment to love them in spite of how they are tragically rejecting God's created design. Which leads to our next point. Speak the truth in love. If someone we know well informs us that they intend to live a lifestyle that we know is wrong, we need to pray for an opportunity to speak the truth to them in love in a way that's appropriate to the relationship. And then I'd encourage, I would urge you to be quick to listen and try to understand what brought them to that place. When prayer and listening are present, then boldly share not just how you understand gender to be a gift from God, but most importantly, the good news of redemption in Christ. Make sure they understand that you are a sinner saved by grace. At some point, you may need to talk to them about some details that, for example, if the person is taking on a new name and pronoun, should you use them? A person's name can actually have a little bit of flexibility, but what happens when they say, I want to use male or female pronouns? That can be more difficult. Because him and her are clearly a reference to gender. (laughs) Them, they, of course you want to show respect because you want to be able to maintain a relationship. But you do want them to understand that you do not wish to endorse their decision through the language you use. As Christians, we need wisdom here. We should avoid unnecessary provocation, which sometimes I think as Christians would we say, well, yeah, I'm going to just tell them the way it is. And your whole reason for doing that is just because you want to provoke them. And what does Romans chapter 12, verse 18 say? As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. While at the same time, we need to recognize we are called to uphold the truth. But remember that the gospel isn't primarily about gender and sexuality. It's primarily a call to die to self, submit to Christ, and experience the joy of walking in the light. What's most offensive about Christianity should not be the Bible's teaching on gender. It's the fact that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath and can be saved only by trusting in Him, a Messiah who was executed on a cross. Rosaria Butterfield, a formerly practicing lesbian who converted to Christ, says something very profound. She said, I wasn't saved out of homosexuality. I was saved out of unbelief. All of us are born sinners, and therefore all of us need a new birth. We don't say, hey, get yourself fixed and then come to Jesus. We say, come to Jesus, and he will put you together again. What happens when the promise of gender fluidity doesn't deliver the happiness someone's seeking? Will this church be ready to receive them with open arms to share the gospel with them? This relates to our next point. Call others to realistic repentance. For any sinner, including our transgender friends, repentance is hard. When you trust in Christ as Lord, you are declaring war against your sin as an enemy. And yet, praise God that repentance is a gift from God, and His power is able to produce real change in us. But what does repentance look like? It's different in individual situations. It could be complex. For a transgender person who has received hormone therapy or had body-altering surgery, there may be work that needs to be done in discipling them. It's a challenge. But when I say realistic repentance, here's what I'm getting at. We can't promise that any particular temptation or feeling of dysphoria will instantly go away when one becomes a believer, though all things are certainly possible with God. Those of us with histories of sin, like gossip, greed, lust, have found that our old habits still feel somewhat innate to us even when we walk with Christ. In the same way, we shouldn't hold out false hopes that becoming a Christian will bring instant resolution to anybody experiencing gender confusion. It's possible to be in Christ, embrace one God-given gender, and still battle from within, waiting for the day when we will finally be glorified and renewed. So to conclude, persevere by God's grace. Let me encourage us to persevere in our culture. Continue to love, show love to family members or friends who may disagree with you about gender and sexuality. God will be gracious to sustain us as we seek to hold on to our convictions and to pour ourselves out in service and mercy. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? He spoke the truth even when it was unpopular. And then he laid down his life for those who rejected him. May he give us the strength to live, to love like he loved. So in conclusion, what we have discussed last week and this evening is an incredibly sensitive subject. As Christians, we have done some things right as we confront this theological issue. I think we properly understand the warnings of the slippery slope that sexual chaos can lead to. We also are correct in understanding the magnitude of the sin of things like homosexuality. And we do, I think, even at least in our church here, we call sin, sin. But as Christians, I think we have gotten some things wrong. For example, we've gotten sucked into using the world's terminology, where we'll be quick to say, well, that's traditional marriage. There's really only marriage, regardless of what the world says. And I fear we have lost our charity as we develop a hierarchy of sin where homosexuality or maybe transgenderism seems to be at the top of our list as we compare it to our own hypocritical piety. We, often with sin, have been the first to cast the stones. So where do we go from here? We still live in this culture, and we still have to deal with it. And it's going to bring us to our next topic that we'll discuss next week. What happen, how should the Christian behave in the cultural chaos when actually they find that they are completely at odds with even what the government is doing or what the government is saying? And so next week we'll reconvene and we'll talk about when is civic disobedience and civil obedience the appropriate action? Thank you for listening